ahead and look to the Lord with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to come before you and just hear what you have to say to us. We pray now, Lord, for good discussion through the power of the Holy Spirit, for wisdom and guidance and knowledge, and we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the post-exilic feast. We kind of got into this very, very briefly last week. We didn't get very deep into it because we had uh, run out of time in the class, and just based upon the time today, we're going to get about a, a good 35 minutes in, or 40 minutes, uh, before we have to uh, stop the study today. But thanks for being here. Um, it's cold outside. Amen. But I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you made the effort to be here. Amen. Amen. Me too. Yes. Pardon me? We're warm. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we'll warm up this whole room with body heat if we stay here long enough. Okay. So let's get to the post-exilic feast. We talked about, again, so we finished up, again, with uh, the tabernacles last week, and now we're going to get into the post-exilic feast. Okay, first of all, we talked about the ninth of Ab, which is on the bottom of the handout. Everybody have a handout? Anybody need a handout? We passed these out last week. Let me know if you need a handout. Okay. And um, I'll give you two. So you can give... Oh, and you know what? And Big Jim has some, too. So that's fine. Okay. I think everybody else is okay. All right. So the ninth of Ab, fifth month of the Jewish calendar, and we in Zechariah 7, verses 3 through 5, are alludes to ritual fasting and mourning carried out in the fifth and seventh months in commemoration of the destruction of the temple. Eventually, the Jews settled on the ninth of Ab as a day to commemorate both the first destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and the subsequent destruction of Herod's temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. Now, I don't know much about the Ninth of Ab, except that it's really hard for me to understand a celebration over the destruction of the temple. And that's why we mentioned last week that it was more than just a commemoration of the destruction. You know, it's, it's in the same way that we would commemorate or have ceremonies regarding 9-11. 2001. We weren't celebrating the fact that people died, but we were celebrating was the patriot. What we are celebrating is the patriotism of our country. So when we look at something like the Ninth of Ab, we're talking about who were the ones who benefited. Uh, was there a benefit per se from celebrating the destruction of the temple? No, but those people who were exiled were still alive and still were able to function, still were able to live in exile. And that's where we need to make sure that we understand where this is coming from. It was a solemn, if anything, a solemn ceremony. And we have to look at that. I'm not looking at it as a, there was a ritual fasting that was taking place. This was not something where people were eating uh, to the point of excess. When we're fasting, that means we're fasting for the purpose of looking to the Lord because of what was happening during that time. There was a great deal of destruction and if you remember, I had mentioned right around the time when the, that temple had, was destroyed and the fall of Jerusalem, there were people who were starving. And many people were starving to death. So perhaps we can look at the fasting as a way of people emulating with this period of time of great struggle. And so I want you to understand that that probably is where we are going with this whole thing. Now let's move on to Purim. Purim. P-U-R-I-M. 
And Purim is only mentioned once. We only see of where that comes from once in Scripture, and it's in the book of Esther. Purim was established to celebrate the failure of Haman's plot against the Jews, as described in the book of Esther. The book of Esther reads almost, it's a book of prose, but it, it reads poetically in some spots, too. Um, it has a way of describing the story of the Jews and what was going on with uh, Mordecai and, and, and all of the efforts for the plot against the people, the Jews. And there was a decree that was put out, if you remember what happens in the, in the story. There was a decree that put out uh, to actually annihilate the Jews. Um, pardon me? By Haman, yes. It, 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 meant it was a plot that he had put forth, and that plot had failed. And the plot had failed because there was an appeal to God to see to it that it did fail. So the festival originally took place on the 14th and 15th of Adar, the 12th month. The word Purim means lots, L-O-T-S, and refers to the lots Haman cast in order to find an auspicious day for the destruction of the Jewish race. Let's go and take a look at this. Turn to Esther. Chapter 9. Let's go back. Let's see here. I want to try and encapsulate this here. Start at verse 1 in Esther chapter 9. I'd like to, like to read down and pick up the latter part of that section here. So we're going to cover pretty much most of chapter 9 in Esther. Now, the heading in my Bible for this section here says the Jews destroy their enemies. And if you're a Jew and you read this, you'd say amen. Because this is something that was not conceived of. That they'd be able to destroy their enemies. But you know as well as I do that any victory we have over our enemies comes directly from who? God himself. He may enable you to fight. He may enable you to be able to reason or do things to talk. But you know what? God is the one who is allowing that, and God is the one who is seeing to it that it takes place. In other words, we need to give credit where credit is due. Amen? Credit where credit is due. We need to be aware of that. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. Now note the month. It's giving you the month, so it needs you to be, you need to be aware of that as far as when this was taking place. And remember, when they celebrate Purim, okay? On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them Fear of them fell on every nationality. How in the world would that happen? God would be the one to enable people to be fearful. God is the one who would say that when he says no one could withstand them, that's because they had the power of God behind them. So be aware of that. Verse 3. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the, satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, 
and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 6, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphin, Asphatha, Horatha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vezatha. Amen. Did y'all, y'all just thought I was going to stumble on that, didn't you? Y'all were taking lots to see what would happen. No. <laughs> All right, verse 10. They killed these ten sons of Haman, some of, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Don't miss the fact that Esther, in her role, working along with Mordecai, had God's influence over the proceedings and working with the king. Now, you can call it whatever it was, with beauty, whatever, you know, wise words. God used Esther to get this done. Okay? Because whenever a king says, whatever we ask, you ask will be given to you, whatever you seek will also be done, that means you have carte blanche. But you're doing it according to what? God's will, God's wisdom. Verse 13, Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law, and may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. Now, one thing we have to also understand, too, here, according to how this was portrayed, it was not enough for Haman's sons to be killed, but it was also important for us to see the demonstration of them being killed and a representation of what it really meant. Remember what happened to Saul when he was in battle and was killed. What happened to Saul? Anybody remember? His head was cut off, but more than that, what else happened? His body was displayed. It was symbolic. They wanted to make a symbolic representation of what was happening. Because, you know, once you're dead, you're dead. You don't know what's going on. But there was a representation of what had happened because Saul, the king, was killed. So what Esther is asking for now is a demonstration of people, those sons being hung on the gallows to represent exactly what was happening about God's victory, good over evil, and a representation for people to see that very thing. Yes, Ed? Yes. That's right. So there's no, there's no discussion about, well, did so-and-so really get killed? I didn't see anything. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay, very good. Verse 14, the king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. 
the rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. Now understand something. You notice how it says several times they didn't seize any plunder? They left it where it was. I'll bet you it was under God's direction. Don't mess with that. Leave that alone. Yes. Yes. Correct. It was a defense, and they were just getting rid of their enemies, and that was it. Okay. Verse 17. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Now let's go on. And now it says, the heading in my Bible, I don't know if you guys have a heading or not, says the Feast of Purim inaugurated. In other words, this was the first feast. Okay? Maybe your Bible doesn't say anything, so I'll just keep moving. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them, to, ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year. Because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. Now, what does this sound like? Let me ask you a question here. I'll, read, I'll continue on reading in verse 24. But what does this sound like when you're celebrating from sorrow to joy? What does it sound like? Does this not sound like the Exodus. You're in slavery. You're in adverse conditions. You're working in sorrow. And yet God delivers you from the affliction you're suffering from and turns you from slaves into free people. Isn't that a reason to celebrate? Amen? That's, but interestingly enough, notice how God has to remind us with these different festivals that this is what needs to take place. He needs to remind us. Because we have short-term memory issues. Amen? We have short-term memory. We need to be reminded of how good we really have it. And these festivals, you know, so Mordecai is writing this out for them to say, this needs to be done every year. Guess why? They need a reminder every year. And not just the people there, but the generations that follow need to be reminded of God's goodness during this period of time. That's what these Jewish festivals are supposed to be all about. Reminders. And even the solemn reminder from the ninth of Ab is a good thing to look at too. Where it wasn't feasting, it was fasting. Fasting as a reminder of what happened to the Jewish people when they were being displaced from Jerusalem. These reminders are very important for us. 
All right, let's get back to verse 24 in Esther 9. For Haman, son of the Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with the sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur, because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days, remember what I said earlier. Look at verse 28. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. What's the reason again? It'll always be remembered. It won't lose its significance. Understand that. That's a very important thing to say. This is not a trite statement. Not lose your significance means it's always going to be important. And their memory will not fade from their descendants. In other words, it's not supposed to fade. They're supposed to remember it every single year. Yes. What do they do now? You know, it's probably a good question. It's essentially, they probably just have a a festival for a couple of days, but I don't know that it's practiced that heavily. It's just not talked about very much. You would have to be more into the Jewish culture to know if that's actually being practiced. It should be being practiced. Yes, go ahead. Orthodox. Okay. They still, yeah. I can see them doing that, absolutely. Orthodox Jews. One thing, not to be disparaging, I'm just going to put it out there for everybody too. Not all Jews practice Hanukkah. Not all Jews practice Purim. A lot of Jews just do what they do. They, They don't practice anything. There are many who just don't do it. They may be like us. That's fair enough to say. And that's not to be disparaging. It's just some are just not following their culture their, or their faith as closely. And, or, they'll, or they'll pick pieces, parts of what they're willing to do, but they won't do all of it. You had your hand. I'm sorry. Halloweenish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I don't know either. I mean, that's your homework assignment. You can look it up and, and see what you can find about that. But 
honestly, you don't really hear about it very much. You hear about, obviously you hear about Hanukkah much more than you hear about Purim. But, so it really depends. It's, there's no, so are they actually following what the scripture is saying about making sure that every generation, family, province, and city not loses significance? Depends on who you are. It depends on where you're coming from. Okay? So we need to look at that for what it really is. Let's finish this up here real quick. Verse, I think I left out 29. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the king, kingdom of Hazarus. In order to confirm these days of Purim, at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. Now, look at all the time that's spent talking about this. There's a number of verses here that are covering all that went through to show how this was established as a festival. Stands to reason it was pretty significant and relatively important. Especially if you're talking about the survival of the very the Jewish nation itself. Yes. Okay. 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 Well, that's that's one evidence of that. That's sure that is. I just I I'm only I can't do anything more than go from my own experience. I haven't heard many people talk about it who are Jewish. Doesn't mean that they don't so celebrate it though. I think that's a fair comment. Yeah, in a Hebrew school you're going to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's a two-day it's a two-day festival. This year it's February 28th and March 1. Okay, very good. So this year it'll be February 28th and March 1. Tell you what, that's not that far ahead. Look out and see if you can see some things about Purim and see how it's received, accepted. And understand that that's, you know, I, I don't want to be trite. We, go ahead. I'm sorry, Charles. You are about to say something. What do we look for? Look, look at calendar events. Just look and see if you can see some things. Look, just do some research. See if you can find where places are celebrating. Yeah. Pardon me? Call the synagogue. Oh, call the synagogue. That's a good idea. Very good. You had your hand up. Is that what you... Public library is another good place. That's a great idea. Yeah. 
I'm sure of that. And I'm sure they would not refuse anybody coming in. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you're asking Pastor Gus if he had something in his mouth. <laughs> he was eating. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. Good. So we just had a good discussion about Purim, and there wasn't as much material here about that, but there's a lot of material here in Esther chapter 9 about it and how it was put in place and what the reason, what was the reason and purpose of it again? To make sure that people remember generation after generation after generation and not so much about what the Jews did, but it's God's deliverance. God's deliverance, that's, that's not mentioned as much here. But we need to understand that God was truly working through Mordecai and Esther to get the king to relent and make sure that this decree was put forth. Or they would have been wiped out. Exactly right. That's, that's, let's just tell it like it is. They would have been wiped out. Okay? Okay. All right, so we're now at the back uh, page of the handout. And here's a place where we're going to have a little fun, hopefully. I don't know if we will or not. We'll see. But uh, this is the uh, area that uh, <laughs> Brother Beecher and I had a brief discussion about this last week. And we thought it would be kind of interesting. Um, the Feast of Dedication. Hanukkah or Lights. Now, we have all seen Hanukkah, correct? We all know that it pretty much coincides uh, very closely to the calendar in December with Christmas for us. And we know that it is, an, it is a celebration that takes place uh, by, by the Jewish people. Hanukkah, now let's, let's show where it was established. This is going to be very interesting. Hanukkah was established to commemorate the recapture and cleansing of the temple by Judas Maccabeus from the Greek forces of Antiochus IV in about 164 B.C. The ceremony took place on the 25th of the ninth month, Chislev. First Maccabees 4, 52-59 describes the initiation of the festival. John 10, 22 and 23 mentions the holiday as an occasion on which Jesus was in Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice that your Bible does not have 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees. Amen? <laughs> it doesn't have it. <laughs> so, we're in a territory, uh, a charted territory, where we're really just kind of doing an investigation to find out exactly how Hanukkah started. And we're not necessarily going outside and saying you have to run out and get a copy of a Bible that has First and Second Maccabees. Because you can do this research on your own. But we're establishing where it came from and how it got started. So, in fact, let's just go, first of all, turn to John chapter 10. I want to I make sure that you're aware that even though if there's a mention of something in Scripture that does acknowledge that it takes place. And it's, in, it's a very small mention in Scripture. It's in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. 
The distinction we're making, first of all, with these post-exilic festivals is that we don't have a decree from God that these are taking place, that these are to take place. Purim was not a decree from God either. It was designated, it was done, and it is still celebrated today. But that doesn't mean that it's something that you shouldn't do. Look, look, any festival where you're celebrating victory because of God's presence makes sense. Let's start with that. Okay? But now let's look at this one. John 10, 22. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. That's the mention. <laughs> That's all we have in the book of John. But it did take place. It was being celebrated. That's all we have in, in this. Yes, go ahead. Oh, okay, yes, that's true, because in the Old Testament, we didn't have anything. That, that's right. There is no mention in the Old Testament. This is the only reference we have to the Feast of Dedication in Scripture that we have. Now, I, for the purposes of giving you information that you can look at here, I actually took an, the, the liberty to put down on your handout First, back up first Maccabees 4, verses 52 through 59. Can't say that very fast. Sorry. So I'm going to read it real quick and just follow along. The 25th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev in the year 148, was the anniversary of the day the Gentiles had desecrated the altar. On that day, a sacrifice was offered on the new altar in accordance with the law of Moses. Oh, let me, you know what? Let me stop for a second. I forgot to mention something. Where would we find... First and Second Maccabees. It's a Catholic Bible. It's in the Apocrypha. That's correct. Very good. I just want to make sure you're aware where it comes from. It's in the Catholic Bible. Okay. On that day, a sacrifice was offered on the new altar in accordance with the law of Moses. The new altar was dedicated and hymns were sung to the accompaniment of harps, lutes, and cymbals. All the people bowed down with their faces to the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord for giving them victory. Once again, victory. For eight days they celebrated the rededication of the altar. With great joy they brought burnt offerings and offered fellowship offerings and thank offerings. They decorated the front of the temple with gold crowns and shields, rebuilt the gates and the priest's rooms and put doors on them. Now that the Jews had removed the shame which the Gentiles had brought, they held a great celebration. And then Judas, his brothers, and the entire community of Israel decreed that the rededication of the altar should be celebrated with a festival of joy and gladness at the same time each year, beginning on the 25th of the month of Kislev and lasting for eight days. That sets up the eight days thing that we talk about with the candelabra. Okay? Then we have... 2 Maccabees 10, verses 5 through 8. They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. The happy celebration lasted eight days, like the festival of shelters. Like the festival of shelters. Interesting. And the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the festival of shelters wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves. What was the Festival of Shelters? The Feast of Booths, which we just covered. 
because they were wandering. Okay. But now, carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. Now, I took the liberty to pull aside information about Maccabees because, first of all, I want you to be aware of what's mentioned about Maccabees. This book is still in the Catholic Bible. It is still read. It is still used and referred to. And we're referring to it from a historical standpoint because that's what this is about. It's about history. It's about recognizing how did Hanukkah come into play. Without the explanation, we don't have any information about it unless we do a research about it and look it up. And notice it says here in this little box that I provided, and this is you know, something that you guys can do as well when you're looking stuff up. Just like I said, go back and look up Purim and look up these things on your own. Most of you have computers, right? And if you don't have a computer, you can go to the library and get you a computer. Okay? Or you got iPads or whatever it is. It's the same thing. Okay. First Maccabees, of course that's the bell for five minutes to go. First Maccabees is a book of the Bible written in Hebrew by a Jewish author after the restoration of an independent Jewish kingdom by the Hasmonean dynasty about the latter part of the second century B.C., the original Hebrew is lost, and the most important surviving version is the Greek translation contained in the Septuagint. This book, the book, is held as canonical scripture by the Catholic, Orthodox, and Oriental Orthodox churches, except for the Orthodox Tewahedu, but not by Anglican and Protestant denominations. Such Protestants consider it to be an apocryphal book See Aldo Deutero Canon. In modern day Judaism, the book is often of great historical interest, that's what I said, but has no official religious status. Okay? And you can see how it's accepted by some, but not accepted by others as canonical scripture. Yes, Ed? Spell it. Sell you see. Okay. Okay, excellent. It would be. Yes. If. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Second Maccabees is a deuterocanonical canonical book which focus on the Mac Mac focuses on the Maccabean revolt 
against Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and concludes with the defeat of the Syrian general Nicanor in 161 BC by Judas Maccabeus, the hero of the hard work. Unlike 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees was written in Koine Greek, probably in Alexandria, Egypt, around 124 BC. It, rep it presents a revised version of the historical events recounted in the first seven chapters of 1st Maccabees, 1st Maccabees, adding material from the Pharisaic tradition, including prayer for the dead and a resurrection on Judgment Day. Now you see how this, now that, you can see where prayer for the dead is an issue that is done in Catholicism. Just to give you a, a heads up on that. Praying for people. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever been to a funeral and it's a Catholic funeral, you'll see people maybe even approach the casket and start praying over the dead body. And praying uh, with Mary's prayers. Uh, uh, I've heard it so much when I was in Catholic school when I was much younger. I could, I could probably recite it, but I, and now I'm, I'm blanking out. But it says... I can't think of it right now. I'm just going to black out. But some of you who are Catholic or raised Catholic probably know what I'm talking about. It's about praying. Um, we're Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. They were, and they were reciting this prayer over and over and over again at the funeral. Yeah, Hail Mary. That's it. Hail Mary, full of grace. I couldn't think of it. That's right. Where Mary was the primary um, mention as far as the prayer was concerned. All right, I don't want to get off track. Thank you, though, for mentioning that. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox consider the work to be canonical. See? Catholics, they, they think it's part of it. They, they say this is important. And part of the Bible, Protestants and Jews reject most of the doctrinal issues present in the work. Some Protestants include 2 Maccabees as a part of the biblical apocrypha, useful, re, useful for reading in the church. Article 6 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England defines it as useful but not the basis of doctrine and not necessary for salvation. So, you'll see the argument about these things and you'll see where some of this stuff formulates. Yes, go ahead, I'm sorry. What is it teaching? Well, what is it teaching? That is another class. <laughs> that is no lie. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's historical, but it doesn't have... That's the whole point. There's right.
but again, it comes back to the historical aspect of it. It's almost like somebody set aside the time to write these books to show the good side of the people, <laughs> of the Jews, as opposed to, like he mentioned in the Protestant version, the idolatry, the, the sin, the things where they kept turning away from the Lord. It's almost like it's a revision or a writing just to show things in a positive light. So, yes. And you know, we, the second bell sounded, so this will be the last comment, and we'll move on, pick up next week. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, technically I just concluded this discussion about Hanukkah. <laughs> but we're going to pick up next week and probably do a little bit more digging into this before we move in and conclude this, this lesson. But I hope, yeah, I know. Thanks a lot, right? Um, but uh, let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time you've given us to just hear you speak to us and, and give us a perspective on what we read and what we're seeing and how, we, how to understand it. Lord, we don't understand everything, and Lord, but you give us the ability through the power of the Spirit to provide us with wisdom and knowledge if we just start seeking you and asking questions and looking for answers. We just thank you and praise you for your presence. We now pray and ask that you bless the upcoming message and the speaker. And we'll give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We will pick up next week. Amen.